disquiet on the Western Front await. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. So let's come back to the initial point. What is deforestation? Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. The people that are fighting on the ground, who are barricading the roads, who are digging trenches, who are refusing to let the police in, they're the ones that are winning the fight. So let's come back to the initial point. They want more and more and more, and there is no end. And the world is like there is no more control. Uh, what people need is more love and understand each other. I mean, this is not just, you know, right versus left. This is kind of an attack on the whole concept of truth. In the end, yes. physics doesn't care yeah. what your skin is. It just does what it does. And also, no matter how rich you are, you have to breathe. Were we under, Were surveillance? We under, surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? And writes a timber harvest plan, who do they submit it to themselves? And that is a conflict of interest. You've used a number of incendiary words. Conflict of interest. What people need is more love. To speak to trees, first, you must recognize the spirit of the tree within you. It's just learning how to take care of the land. And If you were to go invent a carbon capture machine, you couldn't invent a better machine than a tree. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. This is Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki. Thank you for tuning in. I'm speaking with Evan Mills, Ph.D. Evan is a retired senior scientist from the University of California, United States Department of Energy at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. He worked in the Building Technology and Urban Systems Division. Evan specialized in pinpointing sleeper uses of energy, carbon emissions, and he was empowering consumers, policymakers, and non-traditional market actors to capture improved efficiencies, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, enhanced resilience, and other non-energy benefits. This is actually from Evan's website, which is evanmills.lbl.gov, which I really encourage you to take a look at. Evan, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's nice to be with you, Chad. Well, thanks for taking the time. A while back, I introduced you to somebody else as a climate scientist, and you clarified for me that you're not. You're rather an energy systems analyst. What exactly does that mean for us lay folk? The world that I work in, the domain I work in, is is uh, is energy, how it's produced, how it's used, what 
its uh, social and environmental and economic impacts are. So it's, uh, you know, my dad was an accountant and I, uh, CPA, and I, sometimes I think of myself as an energy accountant. You know, it's, uh, some people follow the money, I follow the BTUs, you know, where, how is it, how is energy use? What is the, we, we talk about the structure of energy demand. What's, what's driving energy use? How does it evolve? Uh, what are the choices that are available? And, um, how do you approach that as a planner? You know, whether it's a, a homeowner who owns a house and wants to do better or do different or a commercial property owner or a city manager or a governor or a head of state or the United Nations, there's energy decisions to be made. Uh, so uh, sometimes it gets very forensic. Uh, you know, energy typically, like so many things in society, in Western society anyway, are, are done in a very top-down way using like, old school economic approaches that, well, to have a better quality of life, we have to use more energy, you know, that, that kind of mentality or, you know, we need energy to grow. And so we need to build more supply. And that's kind of the old school oversimplified approach. My community and my research domain really turns that on its head and says, well, what is, we don't really need energy. Like you don't consume coal or kilowatt hours. You consume comfort or the electricity running your computer right now or moving some data around or moving yourself around in form of transportation. And we call those energy services. And so the idea is how do we use as little energy as we need to get the service done? Cause it's the service that we need. Uh, I can use a really leaky bucket and pour a lot of water into it and just never somehow have a full bucket or I can plug the leaks in my bucket and need a lot less water, you know, just by loose analogy. So energy efficiency efficiency of use becomes really the driving principle uh, because nobody wants to spend more money on energy than they need to. Nobody wants to build more pipelines or more power plants than they need to. Uh, nobody wants to pollute more than ostensibly they, they need to. So energy efficiency is really at the root uh, and uh, getting uh, the services we can't need in the most sustainable fashion. Well, this show has traditionally been a show about activism and forest activism and then expanding it to include climate activism. And uh, I have a really expansive definition of activism. And I find that you're an activist. You are doing a kind of activism that is on a different level than many of us. But Evan, in 2007, was working with the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and um, they were the recipients of the Nobel Prize. And this is a, a pretty impressive thing. For some people, it's like, well, what does that mean for us on the ground? But I'm curious, just at first, is how you came to be included. What was the work you did for the IPCC and how it led to a Nobel Prize? Sure. The... The IPCC, which by the way stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is a uh, it's a, a body of thousands of scientists from all around the world, uh, all walks of life. Uh, I should say all religions, all races, all genders. Very amazing brain trust uh, that's been convened by the UN, the uh, World Meteorological Organization within the UN, and the World Health Organization within the UN, which is in itself interesting. Uh, and it, it's been gathering for since the early 1990s. And on a five-year cycle, what it does is assess the state of our collective understanding of the climate problem and then reports out, synthesizes that knowledge, reports out and does what's called uh, policy relevant 
analysis and discussion as opposed to policy prescriptive. Now, this languaging may have changed a bit recently. It's been some years since I've been very actively involved. But uh, this comes back to your your uh, comment about activism a little bit, if, if I may, that, you know, scientists, they, there's some kind of rarefied, stylized notion of scientists as operating in some sort of vacuum at arm's length from society or social issues or social problems or, like you said, life on the ground <laughs> day to day. And certainly if you're studying the origin of the universe or how big the particles are inside of an atom, you know, that's maybe not a bad approximation. But when you're dealing with things like environment, hunger, health, uh, it's about people and it's about other creatures on the planet. And so the world really now is is about applied science, you know, and it's about scientists as uh, advisors, you know, to decision makers to, as you know, as saying before. So uh, activism is a word, uh, you know, there's other other ways to describe that dynamic. But you see in IPCC and in many other domains, uh, look at medical researchers who worked in the AIDS issue or, you know, on and on, that there's a, a real role for scientists to find actionable answers, you know, to questions and help decision makers understand the consequences, you know, of what they are doing or what they're not doing, what they might be doing. So to your question, uh, so IPCC uh, recruits people to participate in these assessment cycles. Uh, we're just finishing up the sixth assessment now. So that's the sixth five-year assessment, so roughly 30 years. And uh, governments essentially uh, appoint or through government-supported uh, agencies and groups appoint, nominate uh, individuals to, to serve. And uh, that's how I you know, came into it. Uh, I think it's worth explaining a little bit. Uh, IPCC is... There are every discipline there you can imagine. I mean, we, we talked a minute ago about climate scientists. So these are people who understand and study the chemistry of the atmosphere, or, you know, how weather systems work, how, how climate itself evolves, what's driving it. Uh, but there's so much more, right? We have biologists, health experts, energy systems uh, thinkers and planners like myself. We have economists, we have social scientists, we have urban planners. Um, and IPCC is broken into three large working groups, which a lot of people don't understand. But the um, these working groups are topical, very big picture topical, and they they uh, interact and interrelate a lot. But you have to organize this problem, right? How do you how do you synthesize the knowledge about climate and come up with recommendations? You know, you have to kind of break it down. So IPCC isn't a room full of a lot of people with white lab coats and thick glasses. They're they're wonderful representatives of all the disciplines and and also geographies. Like we have a whole chapter on small island nations. IPCC looks at industries or meta industries. So they look at the food industry and the food system. Look at health. Uh, look at tourism. Uh, my role was to look at the insurance industry and the so-called financial services industry. So what is the what is the economic impact on these uh, these industries that are of uh, extreme importance to adaptation and to the suffering that will occur? You know, we we talk about uh, one of my great mentors, uh, John Holdren, who was uh, faculty at, at Berkeley when I went there, and then later became uh, Obama's science advisor for both terms. Uh, he would boil it down to say. Uh, we can uh, do nothing, we can suffer, or we can adapt. And, you know, the, and we can mitigate, you know, that we have all these kind of ways of responding. And the less we mitigate, the more we suffer. 
And that's what's happening now in the world. I mean, we, we have been asleep at the wheel. You know, we, we've done things. We've done a lot. But we have not done enough and quickly enough. And so the suffering is going up faster uh, than, it, than it needed to. And that's one of the things IPC has shown very well. So there's your policy-relevant uh, kind of conclusion. Frankly, what we're seeing now is that the temperatures are rising on the worst path trajectory, meaning the, among the worst cases are a lot of scenarios that get looked at. So we have strayed from what used to be seen as business as usual. We are, we are doing less well than we thought we would be doing in terms of the measurable heartbeat of climate change, the, the temperatures, yeah. obviously the droughts that we're seeing, the flooding, and alarm bells are going off more than they were a few years ago. You know, I remember not long ago, we would all uh, complain that climate change wasn't an election issue, wasn't an issue in campaigns, wasn't an issue in choosing our government representatives. And that was true. <laughs> not that long ago, it was a sub-issue. And with all the problems that we're having, I am encouraged, you know, by how uh, mainstream these, these questions have become and how much debate and discussion there is. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of that because there's a lot of bad news. But on the other hand, we have uh, moved quite a bit society in not that many years. Um, not enough again, but, but there is progress and so many great existence proofs of how we can, you know, we can do better. Uh, in, uh, I also worked in the working group three of IPCC. These are all different chapters that I contributed to, and that was on energy efficiency. And one thing I contributed was the work I had done in the developing world with uh, the use of kerosene lighting for, uh, by uh, at that time, over a billion people in the world, which then was like one out of six people, read their books, do their cottage industry at night by kerosene lantern or candle. And I was the first person to add up, how much carbon is that? Hmm. How much money is that? And it turned out it was like 30, 40 million cars worth of CO2 emissions and about, uh, it was over $40 billion of expenditure. So here you have the poorest people on the planet uh, spending all this money for lousy, crappy lighting that's also unhealthful and, you know, on and on. And so uh, through my day job at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, I uh, started a, a program on bringing uh, solar lighting uh, in as an alternative there and making that uh, cost effective and attractive to the private sector. So it's it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And I've looked at the public health effects. I mean, it's we could talk for an hour just about the public health effects of kerosene lighting and and then the alternatives and what we were able to do was come up just briefly with a very affordable, compact, portable, white LED, solar-powered lanterns with rechargeable AA batteries that would cost in their most simple form. There and then they were, and then companies started to make them. And now there are dozens and dozens and dozens of companies making various forms of lights like this. Some of them also charge cell phones. Mm-hmm. And so they they've scaffolded up to these kind of micro solar systems with lighting as the beginning. And it's very exciting. And now I think there's over 150 million people in the world who have uh, solar LED lighting, uh, mostly in Africa and Asia, of course. And so it's, uh, you know, it's an example of something encouraging that's taken off. And uh, in fact, LED lighting probably came into the developing world more quickly than it came in here, which in, in the North, in the wealthy North. And that is also a point of encouragement that uh, there's this notion of technological leapfrogging that as countries develop, 
They don't have to repeat all the same mistakes that we have. They, they might, and they can, and they will if nobody helps them do otherwise. But there's this, when you haven't made this big investment, like look at cell phones as a classic example. You know, there, when I last looked at this, which was many years ago, there were 400 million people in sub-Saharan Africa with cell phones mm-hmm. who didn't have electricity at home. Yeah. There are other ways to charge. And so that's a technological leapfrogging. They don't need to build the wired system. It's like you don't need to build oil pipelines. You don't need to build electrical transmission lines if you decentralize, in this case, solar energy. So it's also a very exciting uh, opportunities. We call it energy access of bringing energy to the developing world in wiser ways than we electrified ourselves 100 years ago and and jumping right to the chase and, and getting to a low-carbon uh, configuration much faster and much less expensively than, than our long uh, winding road that we've taken here in the industrialized world. This brings me to a subject that, that you have been working on, a plan to encourage immigrants to focus on what you call re- green remittances. And for people who don't know, remittances are money sent by individuals, usually immigrants living in the global north, to families and communities in the global south. Uh, remittances are an essential and substantial part of the world's economy and crucial for the well-being of poor families. This is money that goes directly to people, which is really different than most government aid, which goes directly to governments and agencies and NGOs. But this goes directly to families and towns. Um, it, it is substantial. Mexico is the third largest recipient of remittances. And um, in the year 2020, they received at a minimum of 42 billion dollars, U.S. dollars. The tiny, tiny country of El Salvador, which is approximately the size of Sonoma County, receives six to seven hundred million dollars a year. Haiti receives three point five billion dollars a year in remittances. Most of these countries would just collapse without this money. Your idea that you were telling me about is a way for remittances to be a tool to fight climate change. I'd love to talk about this. This is one of the most exciting things to me uh, to add to some of the backdrop that you so uh, uh, skillfully just laid out there. There are a quarter of a billion migrant workers in the world today who send home remittances. And this is like $100 a month, $200 a month to their families. Collectively, as of last year, they're sending home $600 billion a year with a B. And as you suggested, this is really important wealth uh, up to, up to these are, this is the extreme case, but up to 50% of GDP. Actually, that was Lebanon, I believe, last year. And up to $12,000 per year per household, which is um, in, the, in the South Pacific, one of the islands, where more than 50% of the adults are working out of country. Uh, because of poverty there the so it's 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 a, just this enormous flow and it's it's as large or larger than any other flow like official development aid that you were referring to it's it's in the same order of magnitude but it's a lot more stable it just goes up people love their families and they have insight into what the need is and and it's uh it's focused it's targeted it's highly democratic it's purposeful and it also avoids corruption. It avoids the, the overhead, if you will, that governments or other intermediaries put on these funds and the lethargy, the speed with which money moves from the, to those who need it. So it's very exciting in that respect. It's, of course, but the thing is, 
that it's they're rarely directed in any intentional way to sustainable development. Mm-hmm. They and in fact, there are often activities that that can just inadvertently maintain the status quo, buying more kerosene for the lantern. Great example. Exactly. Right. And so, again, it's inadvertent, but it can make the climate problem worse. And, and, you know, not surprisingly, the higher the remittances are to a country, the higher the fossil fuel use is. Not that it's a one to one causal effect, but they're both, you know, they're both in the same direction. So it takes, you know, back to what we were talking about at the beginning, it takes, you know, with all of this stuff, there are, there's this notion of, normative kind of uh, let's predict where we're going to be let's calculate we're going to where we're going to be how bad's it going to be how bad's the climate going to be how much is energy going to grow that's a forecast our community doesn't really do forecasts <laughs> we do scenarios it turns out especially in certain countries uh, the philippines is an example there already is a practice of pooling remittances yes for village scale needs, for example. And that might be to build a school or a clinic or to fix a road. And so these larger, more collective problems could perhaps be funded, you know, through this stream or parts of it could be funded. I mean, when you look at resettlement, which is not a very pretty word, but that's a lot of what we're looking at because the oceans are rising and they're going to keep rising even if we turn off all the carbon emissions tomorrow because of the lag times in the ocean atmosphere system. But, you know, if people are relocating, uh, this could help empower them to be more self-determined in that relocation as villages or as individuals or some hybrid because, you know, we have new agriculture, we have new housing, we have new schools and shared services, uh, new energy-related purchases to consider. You know, are we going to put solar energy on our new house? So in a way, there's a, um, there's a I don't want to call it an opportunity, but it, it's a window of opportunity. So let's say if there is resettlement, just to go with the example that you gave, there is that window. You know, do you build your house in the shade or do you have your roof not facing south? And, you know, all the same things that we deal with here, you know, any, anybody deals with of, uh, oh, I'm replacing my refrigerator. I'm replacing my windows. You know, are, are people going to stop at that moment and say, okay, there are probably choices here. This will probably affect my utility bill. This will probably affect my carbon footprint. Let me get some advice, which takes me to one of the things that excites me about this is that people usually think of remittances as cash and they, can be, and they usually are. But remittances can also, they're often called in-kind remittances. They can take the form of goods. So there actually was a program in Haiti uh, after one of the devastating earthquakes to bring in solar lanterns for people because, you know, the loss of light is one of, you you think of it as, I don't want to say a luxury, but it's like, we need food. Well, light is really important. It's important for women's safety. It's important for children to continue learning. It's important for cottage industry. It's very important for clinics to have light. A lot of the solar lighting is being done in clinics. We're finding, I'm going off on a tangent, but we're finding uh, reduced maternal, maternal mortality, reduced infection rates, uh, because for a whole constellation of reasons, when you bring better and more reliable light into rural clinics, you get better health outcomes. Wow. So at any rate, um, goods can be a thing. And then services, which is something that you don't see the, the literature, if you will, on remittances get into very much. But I'm very excited about the idea of, you know, let's say you want your family at home to wean themselves from pesticides and artificial fertilizers in their garden. I mean, going to some other food as opposed to energy here. But um, that takes some expertise. It takes some advice. It takes some learning. It takes some uh, pointers to new methods, new tools, 
practices. So I think remittances can also be focused on services. And that could applies to energy, obviously, you know, can I do solar? How do I do solar? Uh, what, what's a good solar lighting product to buy? Um, certainly with climate resilience, same thing. What are our vulnerabilities? How do we deal with these mudslides? Uh, how do I make my crops more drought resilient? Uh, how do I protect my cattle, you know, from uh, dying of these new infectious diseases? How can we help make this change? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I think it, by definition, can't be top-down because the top-down, uh, you know, the, the public finance, by bi- national, bilateral finance is by definition not remittances. So there are there are questions of kind of institutionally, how do you do this and how do you uh, how do you establish it? And how do you scale it? I mean, that's the problem. You can do all these things in a little boutique, nice, feel-good project that you can photograph and put in your annual report and somebody's there smiling with their solar lantern. But until you get, you know, millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions and even billions of these decisions, you know, or investments to happen, it's not moving the needle. So, you know, it's about partnerships. Uh, I think uh, the remittance uh, providers, you know, Western Union, the other platforms, there are competing platforms now with technology. That's another thing that's exciting uh, with, uh, with PayPal, with mobile money, with uh, even perhaps uh, not a big fan of cyber currency, but perhaps with that, there's new ways to move money. Western Union takes exorbitant uh, fees. I think the average fee is about 8% or 7% on Western Union money. If you want to send 10 bucks, you're going to pay a lot higher percent. Finding affinity groups, like there are sister city relationships. There are, uh, you know, clubs and groups, even through churches from in the U.S. to their counterpart village in Mexico, where you can have master planning, more thinking, and then spreading the word. Uh, Make it and they will come. I don't think so. You know, there needs to be awareness and a a plan and a process. One of my proposals, which is very generic at this point, but there's no, there needs to be a platform for this, right? It's not just you and a friend in El Salvador. I mean, you could do that and it does happen, but to get it to scale, how do people find each other? How do, how, how does the taxi drive, the Nigerian taxi driver in New York city decide which solar lantern to send or, you know, which service provider to provide does are solar lanterns even available in their grandmother's village. Then you have the private sector because you still need the providers of, you know, the tools for the agriculture or the solar panels or whatever it is. They're, they're a stakeholder and it's in their interest to cooperate with this, to, to foster it because this is a way to make a market and that hasn't been lost, you know, in those industries, but it's just really early days there are things that uh, governments can do on the receiving end. Often remittances are taxed. Well, if this is for sustainable development, do you really want to tax it that the public sector, I think can do, they may even help a platform like this come into existence, help with the education, you know, help with the uh, supply chains, you know, and making products available. So it's, I, I think there's a role to play, but they, the governments or the public sector doesn't need to be the hub of yeah. it. And Maybe we look to, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, look to the, the Googles or the Ebays uh, of the world. You know, I mean, there, there is, or, or look at Craigslist. You know, there are, there are models, uh, again, like 5, 10, 15 years ago, before the internet, 
all this was harder. You know, it was more analog and it was more piecemeal. But there really are opportunities now to pool, uh, to crowdsource and to pool information, products, movement of money. You know, you can move money between cell phones now. So now people who can't sign their name and don't have a bank account in rural India can exchange money with other people remotely. Couldn't do that before. So it's, it's very exciting because I think technology used properly can enable things to happen that, that weren't conceivable just a few years ago. $40 per person, which is small money. I mean, the average remittance is like $200 a month mm-hmm. from taxi driver to, to family at home. One-time investment of $40, you can have like 20 homes have access to a, a solar clothes washer that has zero operating cost or 15 homes or something and, you know, double it and it's half as many homes, cut it in half and it's twice as many. This is real. And he and others are looking at all other kinds of things, grain milling, food drying, uh, water pumping, solar powered, no operating cost, zero operating cost. And you can, when you're sharing these, then this is all shared infrastructure and refrigeration, you know, and solar cooking, solar rice cookers. I mean, seriously, uh, that, and that might just be a household, but you know, I think you get my point that that a lot can be done beyond the garden variety light bulb solution that that helps people uh, collectively uh, in their you know in their communities. Yeah. Well, if they organize the remittances, so there has to be a project, and maybe that is the church group here, or it's the the, the affinity uh, organization, sister city. Let's say the person who's doing the solar clothes washer they can be incredibly helpful here, right? Because you, you get your village together and then everybody talks to the sons and daughters in the diaspora and maybe there's some other intermediation and everybody wins, you know, everybody wins and you don't. And the thing is, it doesn't need to be a giant program. It's just, uh, you know, a thousand dollars needs to be mobilized for that one. But again, it's got to be repeated again and again and again and again to, to move the needle on, on climate and, and on poverty and on women's labor. And, and uh, so these things have to be replicable. And that means you need, needs to really work and it needs to be culturally sensitive to the local, uh, you know, traditions, you know, when you get into cooking, things like that, uh, you know, you can't, there's no one size fits all. So there has to be a lot of sensitivity and flexibility to environmental, cultural, climate, uh, economic variations uh, around the world. and and But where there's a will, there's a way to do that. You are listening to KCXU San Jose 92.7, Engaging Diverse Community Voices. This is Chad Swimmer, and this show originally was broadcast on KZYX, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. I'm speaking with Evan Mills, Ph.D. Evan is a retired senior scientist from the University of California, the United States Department of Energy at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Your current focus is the carbon footprint of indoor cannabis production. What led to this focus? Well, there's lots and lots and lots of people out there working on how to make refrigerators more efficient, things like that. It's important, but there's enough people working on that. But what about kerosene lighting? What about cannabis carbon footprint? Uh, another project I did was on the energy use of computer gaming, which is prodigious, gigantic, $6 billion a year of energy spent on computer gaming. So I'm, I'm always looking for these uh, less underattended energy and therefore carbon, uh, carbon issues around. So I moved to Mendocino in 2008, and I walked into 
uh, it's dirt cheap there on Highway 1. And I'm an organic uh, vegetable farmer. I have fruit trees and I grow, you know, a lot of vegetables. And I was there to pick up something. I'm an energy guy, you know, and I look, I look behind the counter and there's a whole row of thousand watt light bulbs. I asked whoever it was behind the counter that day and, uh, oh, these are for grows. And, oh, and what's that? What are those giant CO2 canisters in the back room? And why are there portable air conditioners? And why, why do you have all this duct work in the back of your nursery? And why are these giant electronic ballasts there and these, these uh, more lights and light fixtures and fans? And, and uh, yeah, it's all just for indoor grows. And so I was, you know, pretty much unaware of, I mean, I was certainly aware that indoor growing existed, but I had no idea that, and, and there was no scholarship on this. There was zero that my community, shame on them, had done and published about energy use to grow cannabis. And I didn't know at the moment whether it was big or small, but I went home and I fired up a spreadsheet and I just started putting numbers in and started interviewing people and reading. And bless his heart, Scott at Dirt Cheap, uh, we became friends and he became, he was already very aware and concerned about this, even though this was his industry. And I have to really give him a lot of credit for, as a proprietor for, asking tough questions of himself and of his industry. And he and others uh, helped me put together a model, basically a picture of how indoor facilities function and hours of operation, watts of use, hours per day, days per week, weeks per year. And I didn't know if it would be large or small, but at the end of it, $6 billion a year of just like computer gaming, actually $6 billion a year of energy across the United States and carbon footprint of, Three million houses, I think. Huh. That was, you know, 12 years ago or uh, 14 years ago. And I've just been pulling on the thread since then, doing more studies and refining numbers, you know, collaborating and, and looking at different aspects of it. I like the slogan that you, you wrote in one article uh, for marijuana to really be green. It needs to be outdoor. Yeah, that was a piece in, in uh, Slate magazine uh, last year. And yeah, when I began this journey being the energy efficiency can fix everything person because we all just love in my field, you know, energy efficiency and think it's omnipotent. It was like, you know, we can figure this out. We can use better lights. You know, LED lights hadn't come out yet for cultivation and we can use better air conditioners and more insulation. And this has got to be solvable. And I estimated in that first paper, which was 2012, uh, 2011 was the first kind of white paper, but the first published uh, paper in energy policy was 2012 that we might be able to get like 75% reduction in electricity use if you pulled out all the stops. I don't think it's quite that much, but it's on that order. Uh, but the problem is that <clears throat> with the typical cannabis facility today, even after, I mean, remember, you know, Proposition 215 was like, what, 1996? Something like that? Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, 25 years, 30 years of indoor cultivation, legal for medical, you know, it's not in the shadows, you know, and there's just been a lot of time to figure this out. It's all I'm trying to say in a long-winded way. But that um, in the end of the day, the typical cannabis facility, which is very high tech, I mean, we're talking about 100,000 square foot, 200,000, 300,000 square foot facilities. You know, these, these isn't people's barns. I mean, it is people's barns. That's part of the problem. People have forgotten about the barns, but uh, there's you know, hundreds of millions of square feet of industrial scale, warehouse scale cannabis grows. I refer to them as Walmart sized. The average Walmart's about 120,000 square feet. And there are many, 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 many cannabis grows bigger than that. 
And so you picture a Walmart, window, windowless warehouse, completely environmentally controlled. You, you know, what do you have to do in there? You have to maintain Hawaii-like conditions 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, meaning 78 degrees Fahrenheit, 50, 60% humidity, and, and illumination as bright or brighter than the sun, 12 hours to 18 hours a day depending on whether you're veg, veg or flower stage. Imagine doing that in Fargo, North Dakota, when it's 40 below zero. Imagine doing that in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's 120 above zero. Yeah. This is a problem everywhere except Hawaii. You know, you get the point. Now, so uh, I, the reason for the headline is that, so, you know, I asked the question rhetorically, your scenarios coming, right? So how many solar cells would it take to solve this problem? on a Walmart-sized building. Can we just put solar panels on the roof? Well, it turns out, at today's energy use, you need to have 20 Walmarts of roof area to serve one Walmart of indoor cannabis grow. Oh. A greenhouse, you need 21, because you can't put them on, on a greenhouse. So, dead on arrival, you know, you cut the energy use in half and you only need 10 Walmarts cut the energies by 75% and you only need five Walmarts. It just, it doesn't work. And they're just getting more energy intensive because they're making the lights brighter and recirculating more, pulling water. You know, you pull water out of the air, which a lot of facilities are doing. That takes energy. Yeah. You know, pump all this carbon dioxide in, you know, they bring the carbon dioxide levels up to, you know, a thousand parts per million, 1200 parts per million. That's five times the pre-industrial CO2 levels. We've actually, footnote, scary footnote, we've, we've discovered now that those levels of CO2 where people are working causes cognitive impairment. We used to think it's 5,000 parts per million, but Harvard Medical School and my lab have both done separate studies, not for cannabis, just because when people are in auditoriums and unventilated schoolrooms, uh, the CO2 level goes up. And so there's been a study for a long time about cognitive performance under high CO2, and they had thought that it was like 5,000 parts per million, but it's actually in the levels that cannabis has grown at. So just a lot of problems, huge solid waste, gigantic solid waste. Most people don't know that, uh, who aren't in the industry, that all the growing media is once through. It's mineral wool. It's not reused. It's hardly recyclable. It's gross. And it's just filling up the landfills. I mean, there are vast amounts. I did the math. Uh, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but just truckloads and truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of these awful briny cubes from these large facilities going out. And then you look at water and sounds good. You know, indoor growers like to say, and they're right if you draw the boundary conditions in a convenient way, but not an accurate way. That Well, we use less water than outdoor people, maybe 25% or 50% less water. Could be, but there's two things wrong with that. One is that how much water does it take to make all the electricity that you're using? And it turns out it's like 10 or 20 times as much water because like water very evaporates from hydro dams, water cools nuclear power plants, water cools any kind of power plant. So when you count societally or, you know, nationally or you know to your borders off the property <laughs> water use it's very high and um so these are among the reasons why it's also a very unhealthy worker environment i mean there's a whole issue of occupational health and safety i mentioned co2 but there are other issues you know this bright light the fungus uh repetitive strain injury there's there's a little bit of a literature now coming up so there but that that's where the statement that we just need to grow it outdoors and meanwhile 
if you look at the prodigious amounts of cannabis that Americans consume now, and you look at typical yields per acre outdoors, which are not optimal yields at all, it would take one-tenth of one percent of all agricultural land in the United States to grow our weed outside. Hmm. Now, if you grow it like John Jevons, I'm not saying he grows cannabis, but you grow uh, in, a, in a, a bio-intensive way, where you're doing close spacing, a lot of compost, good water retention in the soil, uh, planting fava in between crops, you can cut that way down. And you can cut the water use way down also. Yeah. One of the things that is irritating is that when people compare indoor to outdoor for the purpose of arguing for the merits of indoor on water and land use, they compare this highly optimized indoor methodology, computer precision irrigation. I mean, it's beautiful, you know, right to the roots, you know, dimming of the light, you know, fan, variable fan rates, sea of green, very intensive, very intensive, very tightly spaced five, six, seven, even eight crops a year. Uh, and they compare that to, pardon the pun, garden variety, variety outdoor cultivation, which is not optimized. It's in, you know, a lot of water evaporation, excessive spacing. But if you bring in sustainable agriculture, cons- I'm not saying no one does this, but I'm saying the, the, you know, if you picture how the tobacco companies are going to grow cannabis outside, it's going to be with tractors rolling in between and all this EVAP and all these, uh, you know, very low, poor soil quality, compacted soil, and a lot of water use. So uh, my next piece, which is still under development, will look at the fair head-to-head comparison of land use and water use for uh, indoor versus outdoor. The, if you go to the 20 Walmart problem, you know, that's way more land than you need for outdoor cultivation. So the land use uh, argument is spurious. And the water use argument also is spurious if you, you know, even if it's solar, you've got to wash your solar panels. I mean, it's a serious issue. You've got to, especially in agriculture, you know, people, you can lose 10, 20% of your solar output with dust accumulating on solar panels. It's okay. It's better than burning coal, but you you need water and you need to keep those clean. And uh, also outdoor cultivation creates more jobs. I thought we're worried about jobs in this society. And these indoor grows are going to a robotic paradigm. You know, there'll be very few people. Uh, operating these, you know, and that's just another, I mean, there's all these aspects to it, which are very, uh, very interesting. And your most recent article about um, Diablo Canyon and the push to extend its life and that it could partially be attributed to the electricity requirements of the commercial cannabis industry. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not like we, we need Diablo to have cannabis, but I, I started bringing these two problems together when we, you know, we're all seeing all the headlines the last couple of months about reneging on this broker deal, you know, from years ago with multiple environmental organizations and state agencies and utility to shut down Diablo in, in the next year or two. And now they're saying, well, we don't have enough renewable energy and we have a climate crisis and we need to keep running it. And it just, you know, my brow went up. And so I started what, how big is cannabis compared to Diablo? And so when I did my first study, so Diablo produces about 3% or about 6% of California's electricity today when it's running. And cannabis in 2012 was 3%. And today I'm sure it's doubled. I mean, there's just so much more and so much more done indoors. You know, half the counties in California by land area don't even allow outdoor cultivation. Yeah. 
it's forbidden by law. It's legal in the state, but it, they've deferred to the counties, to localities to implement policy. There are entire states in the country that are legal cannabis cultivation and completely illegal outdoors. So at any rate, you know, these are self-inflicted harms. But uh, the point is that that's the kind of relative energy. So it's just, it's the point, a lot of the the hand-wringing in the media and in the the so-called debate about this is that enough alternative energy. But very few people are asking the question about demand, about energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is the single largest source of energy services in in the world, meaning if we had an improved energy efficiency when the Middle East and OPEC woke us up, I should say in the in the seventies, the globe would be using, I don't know, 40, 50 percent more energy than it does today. That savings is primarily energy efficiency. So if we want to worry about something like Diablo, let's be efficient. And I can't think of a more discretionary energy use. Sorry. I have nothing against cannabis. You know, I think it's it's got recreational value to many people. It's got medical value in certain contexts. It, we've been, it's been part of culture for 5,000 years. It's been grown outdoors and achieving all of those goals for 5,000 years, minus 20, you know, however long, you know, I mean, probably in the 60s, a few people had a light bulb in a closet, but, you know, you see my point. It's worked for society outdoor cultivation. And uh, at any rate, it, it's, it's, an, it's a glaring example of how the state has fallen short in really analyzing the Diablo situation. And there's so much electricity that doesn't need to be used. You know, you shut down a hospital, it doesn't work. Shut down a school, shut down a market. You can't do that. You know, I mean, you can do other things to manage the electricity use and have it, you know, be drawn when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. That's a separate conversation. But cannabis is, it's hard to find any other use of electricity that's so discretionary meaning it has an alternative and the alternative for cannabis growing outdoors is basically 99% carbon footprint reduction. You know, you need water to run some pumps and you still, I mean, there's the whole supply chain, you know, you still have to cure it and make your extracts and derivatives. And that's another area that's been very underattended. But if we just look at the cultivation stage, which is the main stage as far as carbon footprint, uh, we don't have to do it that way. And we don't have the luxury, you know, we are in a climate crisis and we have dithered and we have delayed and we don't have the luxury to grow indoors because of what? Because it takes a nicer photograph or it's more uniform or, you know, it's protected from weather in ways that, that our asparagus isn't, that's grown successfully outside. It just, it's hard to be sympathetic. And it, I, I just really think we don't have the luxury to be looking at that. Now there's a flip, uh, a, a, another kind of storyline here, which is the, I, I just wrote an article, a separate article about the, the whole ESG phenomena, environment, social and governance phenomena, which is a system framework that's being used very widely now in the investment world to qualify companies and their, and their uh, funds for comprised of stocks on whether the, these companies have uh, adequate internal uh, environmental policies, governance policies, and social policies. So I wrote the first ever paper about how does the cannabis industry look through that lens? It's just another industry. And I'm not picking on them, but it's like every other industry has been evaluated. There's a lot of double standards in this space as you're, you know, we've done so much energy efficiency and renewables in every industry, except cannabis, you know, for some reasons that can be understood because of the gray and the black market, but uh, it's time to catch up. So while, while at the state level, the 
energy suck for indoor cannabis is, is roughly on a par with the, the nuclear electricity that Diablo puts out, putting that in some perspective. If you look at PG&E land, it's a different story. PG&E, Diablo is a PG&E power plant, and PG&E also imports, as probably the Southern California utilities also import some nuclear electricity from out of state as well. So PG&E land, about 40% of all the electricity delivered to customers is nuclear today. Hmm. So that means that 40% of the electricity used to grow an ounce of cannabis is nuclear. And that means that the environmentally politically correct consumer who, who is a victim, I mean, they don't know better. It's not their job, but who has, is driving their electric car and, and composting their trash and, and, uh, composting their, their plant waste and, and, uh, doing all these good things is smoking cannabis that, that is, uh, for which the largest, largest single energy input is nuclear power and, and the ESG movement one of the topic issues that it was birthed out of was the anti-nuclear power movement. Yeah. And so it's, it's a sad irony that now this kind of product that's for understandable reasons associated with counterculture, liberal values, environmentalism, uh, right thinking, right livelihood is this highly nuclear intense product. And so it's just yet another reason to rethink indoor cultivation and and rethink uh, why we need all that nuclear electricity for whatever purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, we are almost out of time, and I have one more short question. So one of the, the climate change talking points is that we, the human race, has this short window to make changes. And in quotes, if we don't make so and such changes by 2030, we are dot, dot, dot. And you resist this kind of rhetoric. How would you rather have these issues framed? Mm. It's so important. These things are all continuums, meaning the impacts, how bad it gets. Everything we do to counteract that has an impact, has a benefit, has a positive impact. It's a continuum. There's no magical year or magical temperature that before which everything's okay, and afterwards, after which, game over. That's good news. <laughs> That's good news because, <laughs> because people are inclined, it's such a depressing topic, people are inclined to, to give up or say, you know, the, 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 main, the number one question I'm always asked is, is it too late? And I sympathize with the question, but it's the wrong question. Fortunately, uh, it'll never be too late, but it comes back to this issue of, how much are we going to suffer versus how much are we going to adapt? And I'm not saying that climate change won't bring loss of life and loss of quality of life and loss of ecosystems. You know, we're, we're already there. We're deep into it. Um, but, uh, you know, I just gave a talk uh, to the insurance industry in uh, Colombia, uh, Cartagena, and I showed a graph with these scenarios that we talked about at the beginning of high emissions, medium emissions, and low emissions. And for each of the scenarios, it was how many days of the year is the temperature, are we going to have extreme heat events defined as uh, above about 95 degrees Fahrenheit? So these are events that are challenging for health, for agriculture. So today, let's say 10 years ago, because it keeps getting worse, but for Colombia, as an example, teachable example, about 20 or 30 days a year like that in in, uh, Colombia lowlands today. Under net zero emissions achieved middle of this century 
by the year 2100, there'll be about 30 days like that. But heading downwards, already had peaked middle century heading down. Business as usual, maybe four times the current number of days, maybe 80 days. Head in the sand, keep burning up those dinosaurs, 200, up as much as 250 days a year. Huh. 10 times, I think it's eight times as many. And that's the, the outer envelope of the worst case scenario. But, you know, because you have to look at these as probabilities, but it, that, that's a plausible thing. So anything we do today, every better light bulb, every outdoor grown uh, piece of cannabis product, every, you know, solar washing machine, all of it brings us down, you know, on that, that all those futures are possible. And it's only us who's going to decide. We're not destined for one of them. I certainly would not want to take away from any sense of urgency. It's beyond urgent. You know, we, we have dithered, as I said, and, and it, we should have started doing more sooner about it. But there's just no particular threshold. There, there are thresholds. I mean, if big pieces of Antarctica break off and the sea level goes up, you know, a foot, in the course of a month or something, that's a giant problem, you know? So there are these, we call them non-linearities. There are, are for sure, large consequences that we want to avoid, but they're, they're just part of a, a broader fabric. You know, civilization won't come to an end. So I don't want to say if that happens, game over. Also it, it engenders apathy, which is the last thing that we need. You know, people don't realize how much, this is one of my, my big pet peeves. You know, people, I'm generalizing, but it's very common to blame big companies and blame governments. There's enough blame to go around. Those entities have made missteps and have acted in bad faith in many cases and so on. But consumption right, is what, is what ultimately drives emissions. And most people don't know, but buildings, commercial residential buildings, are responsible for 40% of American greenhouse gas emissions, four zero. Hmm. And most of that's homes. I think like a third of that is non-residential, two thirds is homes. You know, we're getting rid of our propane furnace and putting in a heat pump. I drive an electric car. I mean, that's transportation. That's, that's another part of the pie, which is also transportation is individual choices. You know, uh, of course we need governments and industry to enable things, to not put roadblocks in the way, but ultimately I, I can't tell you how many people disparage greening activities in their own lives. How many carpenters and plumbers and electricians like, oh, it's not going to save you anything. doesn't really work. And, you know, we've always done it this way. Those are also individuals, you know, who are influencing or dissuading people from doing the right thing. And so uh, I guess the roundabout way of saying what we do as individuals does matter. It's not just big smokestacks. And those smokestacks are making crap for us, mostly. So, I mean, all the, you know, so much of China's carbon footprint, carbon emissions are for American consumed products that, you know, come in, break, go in the trash, you know, the shipping costs. So I'm not saying that China's off the hook. You know, they've got a very dirty grid, although they're doing more with renewables than we are, more with electric vehicles than we are. But it's, it's complicated, you know, and I think, I think one thing, w w what I would say to people is feel empowered and feel responsible in, in a non-scolding sense, you know, just in a, in a constructive sense that, that you, our choices matter. Every, every little choice matters. I've been uh, trying to give some advice to Mendocino uh, 
high school through their remodel that's going on right now. And they, uh, to their credit, are electrifying and uh, stepping away from diesel boilers. That school, which only has 250 kids in it, something uses a swimming pool full of diesel fuel every year. Hmm. Eat these leaky classrooms. The kids smell the fumes through the window, and uh, but that's now now changing. And part of the redevelopment will uh, is tightening up the buildings, putting cleaner uh, heating and cooling in, and then making it possible to solar electrify on site. And that can be added. We hope you know uh, later, and not that much later, and really you know finish the process. Uh, so those are decisions, you know, but they're they're decentralized decisions. They're school boards. They're their church groups deciding how to re-roof their church, their you and I in our houses, their, their uh, taxi companies deciding which cars to build up their fleet with. It's Hertz and it's fleet. Uh, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. And it's all these collective decisions that determine the emissions. And I'm optimistic, guardedly, <laughs> but it, uh, the worst thing to do is sit back and just wait for Uncle Sam to fix it or wait for, a coal company to go bankrupt or something, you know, those things have to happen in parallel, but public sector can't fix this stuff unilaterally. I mean, they're not going to tell you and me how to set our thermostat. I mean, that's part of it, right? That a lot of this is behavioral. You know, everybody needs to act. If things are going to be different, you can't just sit back and, and wait for it to be done for you. Yeah. Well, we are out of time. How could people find your articles? Well, feel free to go to evanmills.lbl.gov, E-V-A-N-M-I-L-L-S.lbl.gov, and you can click on the publications tag. There's also a lot of presentations that I've given, many, many, many. You can look at online, and they're actually a quicker way to absorb the essence uh, of some of the messages. Very visual. I work a lot with visuals. You know, there are a lot of great resources out there uh, for your home. You know, go to EPA, go to the Energy Star page homeenergysaver.lbl.gov or hes.lbl.gov and you describe your house and it estimates your carbon footprint and makes recommendations of things you can do to fix it. But there are a lot of calculators out there. Evan Mills, PhD, a retired senior scientist with the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and an energy systems analyst. Thank you so much, Evan, for spending the time with us. My pleasure. It was great talking with you, John. This has been an interview with Evan Mills, Ph.D., Energy Systems Analyst and co-recipient of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. Thanks for tuning in to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Climate Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. I'm Chad Swimmer. The views and opinions expressed are only those of myself and my guests, not those of the staff or management of any station airing this show. Big thanks to Manu Martinez for picking up Disquiet for KCXU San Jose and to Alicia Bales Littletree for the encouragement that has made this show possible. Disquiet, because the dissonance is deafening. We're going to go out with a band from España, Macaco. This song is called Madre Tierra. See you next time. Quizás nos cambia la mirada Y actuemos como el que defiende a los suyos y a los que vienen con él La raíz de mis pies yo sentí 
If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.